feel like Gordon Bombay would have taken his career to even further heights. Everything's flashy, everything's cocaine, everything's fun. Open wide for some soccer. I don't care what you think about, what your personal thoughts are at home. I care that you hate the Cowboys. Call this college rule! Welcome back, everybody, to the Sports Experience Podcast. It's Dom and Chris here, just a couple of comics talking sports. And uh, make sure you go to our social media pages uh, at the Sports Experience Podcast and subscribe to us on YouTube, if you would. Uh, Got a lot of good episodes out, over 150 on basically all sports, so come and check us out, Chris. Yeah, check us out on all uh, streaming platforms, and then uh, we got another great one today. Who we got today? We have got Norm Van Brocklin. American hero. One of the greatest quarterbacks (laughs) of all time. And an American hero. That's right. (laughs) And uh, like we were saying, uh, Don was talking about it before the podcast, the great football mind, especially for his era, which uh, wasn't always common. Great football mind, horrible at interpersonal relationships. That's right. He should have read that book, uh, Making Friends and Killing Your Neighbor. What's that one? (laughs) I believe that's it. Heidly Ho. But... uh, (laughs) Norman Mac Van Brocklin, Stormin' Norman, born March 15th, 1926 in Parade, South Dakota. Yeah, that's a good uh, a good American I love a parade. Town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> His dad, Mac, uh, Mom Ethel. His dad was a watchmaker, which I found interesting. Uh, we actually did an episode on uh, someone who was the son of a, or, an, or a descendant of a watchmaker, too, in Pavel Bure. So yeah. that was a nice little... Spiderweb. Uh, they moved uh, when he was a kid to uh, Northern California, settled in Walnut Creek, and uh, basically spent the rest of his childhood out there. Yep. Um, went to uh, Acalanus High School in Lafayette, uh, kind of East Oakland area, where he was a three-sport star, much like every other athlete we talk about on this podcast. Well, especially in this era, too. They just always played what was in the season, and you know what I mean? But uh, he did kind of excel in, in football, but we didn't really get to see that uh, culmination. Yeah. Well, and I mean, he had good size for the time, about yep. six foot, 200 pounds, which is, for that time, great, and also great for Kyler Murray nowadays. But uh, stars as a sophomore and a junior, but his senior year does not happen on the gridiron. No, there's something that's happening. Out in Europe. And out in the Pacific. (laughs) Across the pond. Um, He ends up foregoing his senior year in high school and joining the Navy. um, For the ESPN2 of wars. I believe it was in 43 when he ends up joining and going and serving in World War War II when he was still a kid. A war so nice they named it twice. So he's spending his 17 to 19-year-old years out of school and in the Navy. Like David Robinson like and the <laughs> village people. Probably not a lot of village people at that time. But uh, after the war, um, it is uh, basically uh, 1947. So he's a hard 21 now because he's a veteran. And at that time in the NCAA, they started letting people who had joined the military in high school becoming freshmen in their early 20s. And Norm Van Brocklin is one of those and goes to the University of Oregon with one of his high school teammates. Yeah, I saw that he uh, followed one of his high school teammates up. And uh, I think he said, literally, we can go to college up here and they're going to let us play football. Yeah. So GI Bill, I mean, get an education and play some football and beat up on some 18 year old kids. Yep. Um, 1947, he becomes a starting quarterback because in 46, you have to sit out. Um, he goes in 47 and 48, 16 and 5 as a starter for the Ducks. 
And um, in 1948, there was a controversy and kind of helped fuel the University of Oregon and Washington rivalry. Did you read anything about that? No, I didn't see that. So what ended up happening... Oh, the voting. Was, yeah. So oh, I did see that. Okay. At that time, there were not a gajillion bowl games and the maxi tampon bowl or whatever you want to call it um, for West Coast schools, because this is the Pacific Coast Conference, which later becomes the... Um, Pac-12. Pac-8, Pac-10, yeah. Pac-12. So there's, yeah, there's eight teams uh, in this uh, Pacific Coast League. And uh, Washington is undefeated, but they've played fewer games. But Oregon, their only loss was to number one ranked Michigan, but they had one more conference games than Washington had on their schedule. And um, you would think with the more Northwestern teams and California teams in the conference and with Stanford voting in Oregon's favor, they would get to go to the Rose Bowl because... Washington had already been even sooner. And they end up picking Washington and turning their backs on Oregon. Yeah. And at that time, that was the only bowl bid for teams on the West Coast. But what ends up happening is Van Brocklin and the Ducks, they get to play in the Cotton Bowl against a Southern Methodist. Which first, first time. First West Coast team to ever play outside a bowl game outside of the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was interesting because you're right, I did end up reading this and uh, both Washington and Oregon lost. So uh, mm-hmm. oh, actually, there you go. Or, yeah, or no, I'm sorry, it was Cal. Oh, it no, was yeah. Cal. It was Cal. Washington voted against That's, Oregon. That's what it was. Yes. yes. Okay. Checking my notes there. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Cal was undefeated. Uh-huh. And then uh, Washington had the deciding vote, which people thought was going to go to Oregon. Because they're going to support their, uh, their Northwestern. Northern, their Northern brothers. But no, they, for whatever reason... Yeah, maybe a little money. Maybe maybe a little scratch on the side. Yeah, but that's the Oregon-Washington uh... route. Van Brocklin was a huge part of this. Um, what ends up happening, though, is they go to the Cotton Bowl, and while they lose to SMU and Heisman Trophy winner Doak Walker, Van Brocklin finished sixth that year for his efforts. Um, he's named the most outstanding player for his team in the game. So there's a lot of um, interesting... Uh, things after this season because Van Brocklin has been in school for three years and you can't leave school after three years. But what the NFL decides to do, because this is World War II times, they allow him to leave school if he wants to because of the years he spent in the Navy because he would have been in college for those uh, 44 and 45 seasons. So they look at it because they literally were letting nobody go out early they were like he can go out early and other guys who served this instead of coming straight out and going to college so he's in this class but i saw that there was still uncertainty even on draft day whether or not he was going to go back to college because this isn't even like draft day now this is like everyone not, not even like a process where it's like media friendly or anything like that it's like should we take this guy he might have to go back to oregon (laughs) some guys were just getting chose by their name yeah that's it it's like where did they go to school oh i've heard of him yep (laughs) he was on the old boob tube for the rose bowl no uh so in this draft um he falls all the way to the fourth round um which is 37th overall which now is like the upper echelon second round pick but there aren't that many teams yeah but still drops fourth round goes 37th to the la rams and kind of well like it's an interesting situation with the rams and kudos to them for taking him because he was available because they already had a hall of fame quarterback on their roster in bob waterfield yep and that was my question because a lot of the things 
a lot of the teams in this were not against splitting time between two QBs. No, uh-uh. And that's why I think this draft pick was actually really great for the Rams because they were like, we have a great QB. We can do this as a split job. Not like today. Today you couldn't do that. Well, not, not with even the a egos. Split job, yeah. But like, what if Waterfield gets hurt? That too. I mean, like, in in that at that time, you've already made three picks to bolster your roster. Why not bring in another good quarterback? So um, in 1950, because um, 49, he kind of is just relegated to punting and backup duties. But uh, in 1950, the Rams coach Joe uh, Steidahar uh, platoons him with um, Waterfield, and at this moment, the Rams have an awesome offense. Just a really high-flying off. Two Hall of Fame wide receivers in uh, Tom Fears and uh, Elroy Crazy Legs Hirsch. And Waterfield and Van Brocklin like throwing the ball down the field. Because <laughs> at this time in the NFL, the passing game is still kind of rudimentary where you're going for broke every time you're throwing it, it seems like. Well, it, it was very much to where it seems like uh, cornerbacks were still white. So you can just bomb it down the field. <laughs> And just see what happens. And that's what it seems like this kind of offense was built around, was very much of a, the long game. Well, so. in this 1950 season, um, mm-hmm. Fierce set the record for most catches with 84. We've talked about Chris Carter and Sterling Sharp. but uh, And then Crazy Legs, Hirsch on that offense, too. They scored 466 points, which means because it's only a 12-game season, that 38.8 points a game is still an NFL record, and I don't think it'll ever be broken with the um, is, as even as good as the offenses are. And both finished one or one and two in passer rating yeah. that year, which I think is really cool to uh, have that type of consistency and no drop off in productivity. Well, just to show what kind of offense that was, it was without a doubt the number one offense in the NFL at this time, we, and that's what you know everybody was looking at they had number one numbers yeah and uh they make it all the way to the uh nfl championship game and lose 30 to 28 to the uh cleveland browns but uh van brocklin's 8.8 yards per attempt led the league and his qb rating led the league and he had 18 tds which isn't bad when you're splitting time (laughs) um in 1951 though uh let's let's get into the opening game of 1951 because it's uh, very important in NFL history. So Waterfield goes out injured. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was meant to be a, a split game like normal, um, Van Brocklin was given the rock for the whole game. And he said, I'm going to show them what I can do. And that's, I mean, I mean that's an understatement. <laughs> it's such Against a the New York Yanks um, opening weekend of the 51 season. He goes bananas, basically. Like, pretty pretty incredible. Um, he The team racks up 735 yards in this game. He has five touchdowns, two picks, but an NFL record 554 yards passing. What's phenomenal about that, it's yet to be broken in 71 years. I don't know if we're ever going to see that one broken. It's so many yards, and that's 550 yards on 27 passes completed. I've, yeah, I've seen Ben Roethlisberger do it three times. And like you'd always see the Norm Van Brocklin at the top and guys like Warren Moon and Tom Brady, and you're mm-hmm. just like, how the hell has this not been broken? But it's like, an, it's like Cy Young's 511 wins almost, man. It's crazy. But yeah, on 27 completions, that's an insane yards 
per completion and yards per attempt because he had 41 attempts. Yep. That's over 10 yards an attempt. Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's crazy numbers that he was putting up. Um, and that's what everybody was saying was like this game, if you go back and look at it, I just don't know if a quarterback will ever be able to beat this record. Oh, yeah. Um, then uh, what was I going to say? That year, uh, he led the league in yards per attempt, obviously, 13 touchdowns. And he was the team's punter as oh, well. Oh, yeah, he was still the punter he at that point. He was still the punter. Um, the, Hirsch said a uh, record that year was 17 reception TDs, which stood for a while. He broke a Don, or he tied Don Hudson's record that year. Um, and then... Um, they make it all the way to the NFL title game at the L.A. Coliseum and end up pulling it off, which is their first NFL title, but also their last one until 1999 as a franchise, and their last in L.A. until this past year, oh. which is crazy for professional football, Yeah, at least for the Rams. The Raiders won uh, back in the 80s, but uh, you could kind of see what... Uh, what uh, Mr. Van Brocklin was doing, because he emerged as one of the league's best even while splitting time. Yes, that's what uh, what I was saying was he was looked at as one of the best. Like they had probably like two of the top five quarterbacks and they were both splitting time, which just you just wouldn't see nowadays. You couldn't su- sustain those contracts. But like it, it's such a great offense in that time that the Rams had. And yeah, geez. Van Brocklin is kind of his skill set is now what the evolving passing game is becoming in the NFL because he could see the field really well. He could stand in the pocket. He was tough as nails. He could, you know, take hits, but he could also was also very accurate for that time in the types of routes these guys were running. He wasn't just mad bombing it down the field. He had a very keen understanding of how an offense works and how the game is played. So he could see what the defense was giving him and, and mm-hmm. where it should be thrown. He was and like you were saying, it's probably one of the smarter uh, players in this in this era. Um, but yeah, he was such a great quarterback. Yeah, fifty two. He went six and zero. Waterfield retired after the season, but Van Brocklin led the NFL in completion percentage. Um, had uh, fourteen touchdowns and uh, led the NFL in yards per attempt again. So I mean, he's the premier quarterback of this time where we have uh, jokesters like Bobby Lane playing. That's right. I'm sure they had some. Uh, Fun encounters. Epic duels. <laughs> Epic duels. Uh, 1953, he goes 8-3-1 uh, with almost 2,400 yards, 19 touchdowns, and then uh, averaged uh, 42.2 yards a punt, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I feel like guys of this era like him and Sammy, but like all the quarterbacks did the punting. Yeah. You know? Because like, wasn't Bobby Lane doing like place kicking too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was very much um, the kicking really fell on the quarterbacks in this. I believe he even had the the record for – or not the record, but two-time um, punt champion or whatever you want to call it yeah, for the NFL. The and the punts. Yeah, yeah, it's such a weird thing to have that as a record, but quarterbacks from this era just had it. Well, he had that special teams near and dear to his heart and didn't want any outsiders yeah. coming in, if you well. know what I mean. Um, 1954, uh, 6-4-1. He led the NFL in passing yards this year. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just putting more notches in his belt. He had uh, almost 2,700, um, uh, 13 touchdowns, but a league-leading 21 interceptions. So yes. he's throwing it up all the time. Um, 1955, um, they end up going back to the NFL title game but losing to the Browns. Well, I wanted to bring this up because they were saying that in this time he kind of became a little bit inaccurate and if you look at this title game i think he had six interceptions yeah, through six picks in this game yeah and the browns just ate him up so it was 
and he had a good year. I mean, he had yeah. uh, 2,700 yards, um, uh, almost 2,700 yards, and uh, led the NFL in yards per punt. Yep. So two-way player. But yeah, the six picks isn't gonna. No, they and they just they just destroyed him in that one. Yeah. So. And this is kind of where you start seeing his issues with the front office and coaching staff. Yes. Is kind of around this era because in 56, 57, he is injured too. He only goes eight and eight. Um, plays in only 16 of the 24 games, uh, 27 touchdowns, 33 interceptions. Uh, leads the NF- NFL again in interceptions in 57 with 21, and uh, had issues with Sid Gilman, who is one of the greatest offensive minds in NFL history. We had talked about him with the Chargers in our AFL episode. Um, didn't really mesh with him well as far as their offense goes, and was going to retire in January 58. Well, back to Portland. He felt like he wanted more control of the offense. They were obviously not going to give him that at the Rams. Sid Gilman's too smart to, you know, but, you know, probably recognized how smart Van Brocklin is. But it's like, no, you call the plays I tell you to call. Yes. And he ends up retiring for like four or five months. Yeah. So he does retire. He goes back. He's chopping wood. Doing the Rocky Four thing, running up in those cascades, yelling Drago. That's right. And he decides his dead black friend. He decides it's just not over. Mm-hmm. So he goes back and has the Rams trade him because he just doesn't like that was probably what fed into this retirement. He's like, I'm not coming back this next year and playing for this coach. So trade me and I'll come back and they do and they do they trade him where Chris to the Philadelphia Eagles flip flip Philadelphia and you know what this was even pre Santa Claus this so. is, but he fit like a glove in a city that boos Santa Claus well I'll tell you what I found so interesting because he was one of the best quarterbacks probably a really well-known quarterback guys from the Eagles because you just didn't know even other players in the league. Yeah. Like, this is what they literally said was, yeah, I mean, I knew that he played for the Rams, but I don't know anything about him. Or, like, you <laughs> oh, know what they I mean? were there going was like, to learn quickly because they fell right in line. <laughs> well, that that's the thing is they they were just like, I have no idea what kind of person this guy is. I know <laughs> I don't even think they've watched film on him necessarily. Like, it's it's – I'm talking about the offense. You know what I mean? It's such a – yeah, so he comes in and he Van Brocklin's this place. Up. Yeah, because they're a down franchise under head coach Buck Shaw. In '58, they go two nine and one, but Van Brocklin plays well, and he's kind of winning everybody over, like as the team leader, the motherfucker in charge, basically. Well, they said that he was more in control of. I don't know if it was necessarily play calling, but the way the offense was ran. And he was a film junkie too. A great story because. Um, John Madden was drafted by the Eagles, but he ended up getting hurt, but they kind of kept him around as like a part of their coaching staff. He said he'd watch film with Van Brocklin and just be amazed at how he would break the game down. Which is... Which is awesome, because say what you will about the parodies of John Madden. The guy went over 100 games in the NFL in a Super Bowl. And he's known for breaking down film. Yeah. That's the other thing that Madden's known for. So, like, he, he can no break down. No telestrator for Van Brocklin, just yep. a cigarette, a glass of whiskey, and just pointing angrily. Yeah. Why isn't he doing this? Rewind. And then it's just real film. <laughs> Rewind. <laughs> but no, he, brilliant man, Norm Van Brocklin, as a football mind. Um, but they go 2-9-1. and one. He leads the NFL in completions attempts, over 2,400 yards, um, 41.2 yards a punt, because why not, Chris? Again. Why not? Again. 
Um, and then in 59, they go 7-5. and five. So they have basically a five-win turnaround yeah. that year for him. Um, he had a career-high 56.2 completion percentage. Mind you, like when we've talked about quarterbacks in – like a Troy Aikman, it doesn't seem like a lot, but for this time, it is a lot. Yeah, you have to compare it to the other quarterbacks in the same. Man of his time, and Chris. He so Wasn't is. he a man of his time? Woo! Um, 2,600 yards, 16 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, and 42.7 yards a punt, and we get into 1960. And 1960 up until basically 2017 and big dick Nick Foles from the U of A stepping in Jeff Hostetler in it like a pro. This was the banner year for the Philadelphia Eagles and their fans. It's well, what they hearkened back to as they hit Santa with a hoagie and a rock and a snowball. They were great all year. So mm-hmm. they have a great regular season. They go 10 and two mm-hmm. and you see them in the Super Bowl against the Packers. And it's a very pass first offense. Kind of three wide receivery. Tommy McDonald obviously leading it because he was a fantastic player um, wide receiver. I think he's in the Hall of Fame as well. Um, they were pass first with Van Brocklin because yeah. he was running the show. Buckshaw was just like, "Go ahead, man. Go ahead and do your thing." Van Brocklin it up for me, the Dutchman. Um, Twenty career high, twenty four touchdowns, a career fi- high, eighty six point five quarterback rating, and he. Uh, had a career-high 60 punts with a 43.1-yard average. So he did it all. He I was going to say, and this was one of his best years, if not his best year on this way to the Super Bowl. As a pro, and he's 34 years old, he's a grizzled veteran, which is so fantastic. And it also like reaffirms his thing of, like, if I run this offense, I can give you this victory. Yeah, if, if you let me, if you just... Lead, follow, or get out of the way. I'm going to lead. You're going to follow, and the rest of you fuckers are going to get out of my way. Seriously, though. <laughs> but uh, because of their ten and two record, they win the, uh, I believe, the Eastern Division of the NFL because it's first year of the AFL. So I mean, it's just the NFL basically. Um, and they go all the way to the title game, and they draw the Green Bay Packers and Paul Horning and Vince Lombardi and that Packers sweep. And they're playing them at Franklin Field in Philadelphia, where eight years later, no O.J. Simpson. And they beat them. They win 17-13 to 13 and win the, their, the NFL title. And they're, they say Van Brocklin had a, a fourth-quarter drive to put them up 17-13. And it, it, I mean, it cements them in this. It cemented them as legends basically until yeah. five years ago. <laughs> That's it. I mean, still forever, but... Uh, interesting fact about the game, it is the only time a Vince Lombardi coach team lost in the postseason. Yeah, playoff game. Yeah, lost in the postseason. And uh, there was talk that Van Brocklin would be the next head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles the following year. What he said was mm-hmm. there was a gentleman's agreement. He that said, she said. He would quarterback three, four years and then take over as head coach. I love gentlemen's agreements. Um, Takes you back to the mad men times. After he wins the Super Bowl, he's like, I'm ready. I want to be head coach. And if, yeah, because it is uh, before, but he was like, we won the NFL title. I want to be the coach. This was the agreement. And the Eagles were just like, no, we don't. We don't want you as a coach. And I imagine Never stab this guy in the back, by well, the way. <laughs> I imagine he is very because the rumors that go around is he's very gruff. He's very hard to deal with personally. And I imagine the Eagles after three years were like, Oh, we're gonna give this guy more power. I'm sure if you're his teammate, you love him. 
Oh, 100%. But if you have to play for him and can't call him out on his bullshit or just be like, okay, well, at least there's maybe somebody to check him, not necessarily running the offense, but just check his behavior, it's fine. And you'd go to war for the guy. But if he's your coach and you're the assistants too in the front office, it does. it's not a recipe for success even now. I wonder if he would be a Reason. better offensive coordinator or just like not the head yeah, or if he or general if he could, manager yeah. and sh- like giving someone like that too much power despite having a brilliant football mind like you can lead a horse to water but you can't make them drink yes you know exactly. what i mean and that's kind of i think what philadelphia realized and they were like randy jackson and up sorry no it's gonna be a no from me dog it's gonna be a no from me dog so he doesn't end up uh does not end up going to Philadelphia, but that's okay. Well, he doesn't stay at Philly, and this is what I find so crazy is after literally winning this NFL champ, he goes to, the like, six months later, he's coaching the Vikings in Minnesota. The expansion Vikings, by yep. the way, because um, we had talked about in our NFL-AFL merger episode. Go listen. Very popular, very informative. Minnesota gets an NFL team because the NFL poaches them from the AFL because they were one of the original markets. And they said, no, 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 we'll just give you a team. Just join us, yeah. please. Um, so on uh, January 18th, 1961, uh, he becomes their first head coach. And he has a couple of decent winning seasons for him, but it's still an expansion team. And he's, while the team is improving and he has certain pieces, it never really works out for him there. And he goes 29, 51, and 4. And while they go 8, 5, and 1 in 1964, they have, he's has some issues with his own quarterback. He hates his quarterback. He hates his quarterback. It's an understatement to say that his issues, he literally came out in the press and called him a scumbag, and he doesn't <laughs> understand why he won't stay in the pocket. Well, he would always tease Sonny Jurgensen, who I believe is a Hall of Fame quarterback, and it was his backup in Philadelphia. Jurgensen would say he'd always get on me for any time I wouldn't stay in the pocket. And Fran Tarkenton is basically the original version of Russell Wilson, uh, to put it mildly. A fantastic quarterback who uses his legs to get out of trouble, but a terrific passer. It's just, if trouble comes, he's going to get out of the way and set himself up for a better throw. And that drove Van Brocklin nuts. Yeah, he just couldn't get his mind around scrambling. And Van Brocklin, or not Van Brocklin, but Tarkenton had the passing touchdowns record until Marino. Yeah. I mean... So he was a great quarterback. He just hated the style of his play, and Van Brocklin, gruff, smokes cigarettes on the sideline. Why can't we have that now? Would love to see Mike Tomlin smoking a spliff, you know, on the sideline. Checkered jacket. Oh, God, and that Tom Landry hat. I'm a big league executive. Oh, the Denver Broncos! (laughs) But, yeah, he was very outspoken, and... And... Tarkenton is very mild-mannered, comes from a religious background, and, well, Van Brocklin was in the Navy and kind of an asshole, Yes, so swears like a sailor. I thought it was interesting they ended up both leaving in the same office. Yeah, so uh, I want to get into this story real quick. Um, in 1965, uh, there were lots of expectations on the Vikings because they went 8-5-1 and one the year before, and people were thinking, okay, maybe that Packers dynasty from 61-62 isn't happening because... You saw in 63 the Bears win. You saw in 64 the Browns win for the last time. Maybe it's Minnesota's time to shine. Yeah. Um, they start 5-3, and three, and then they have a game against the Colts on November 14th, 1965. The Colts are 7-1, and one, and 
the Vikings are five and three. If Minnesota wins, they're back into that playoff NFL title picture. The Colts are starting their backup quarterback, Gary Quazzo. Johnny Unitas is out. This is perfect. It's a Metropolitan Stadium there in Bloomington. And the game starts off well for the Vikings. They go up 7-0. And then it proceeds to rain touchdown passes from Gary Quazzo. He throws five of them in his NFL debut. And the Vikings end up losing 41-21. After the game, Van Brocklin basically said the game broke his spirit. He said he needed to get out of football now, and he resigned. <laughs> 18 hours later, he asked for his job back. Which is... George Costanza in it! It's such a great story because he was so frustrated with losing. He was just like, no, yeah, I'm done. And then he literally came back into the office and was just like, oh, that? No, I was kidding. <laughs> it was a joke. Come on. My bad, guys. <laughs> What was it? I think George Hallis, um, who was still coaching the Bears at the time, said, no, I kind of figured something like this would happen with yeah. a hot-headed man. But it had to be demoralizing because, you know, you're in the thick of it and you suffer a loss like that. And honestly, the loss crippled the Vikings to an extent where they finished the year 7-7. Seven seven. They had an awful 1966 and went 4-9-1, and that's when the Tarkenton they blew up. came to a head, Yeah, which is kind of unfortunate. Um for them um he re, um let's see yeah so he's fired uh, in uh night or he resigns in 1966 base after the 66 season but uh in 1967 he uh comes back yeah has a little bit of a revival goes to the uh atlanta falcons the uh he takes over uh i believe uh yeah, he or no, in 1967 he's at CBS Football. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he as a commentator. Mm -hmm. Uh and uh do you want to get into his view on kickers, the new kickers that are coming out, Chris? Well, so and this is my thing with guys from this era, men of his times, is he felt like kicking should be a certain way. Straight it should on. be straight on and drop kicks and all of that kind of bullshit. And the new way of kicking which was obviously a better way of kicking a football was like soccer style and he hated soccer style kickers did he hate the so style much. or did he hate where the kickers came let, from let me give you his exact quote on uh, soccer style kickers they ought to change the goddamn immigration laws in this country and john rocker applauded that's literally what he said because it was foreign soccer players coming in and showing us how to kick the fucking football. <laughs> that Hank but, Hill quote where he's like, Kank, we need to cut one of the players to let him on the team. How about that barefoot kicker nobody seems to like? That's literally That's literally what Norm he was just cutting those soccer style kickers. <laughs> oh my god. But that was his style, that was his that's who he was. That's, he was a man of his time, and things are changing in the 60s NFL. And to his benefit or his demise, he stuck to his guns, the old Dutchman. Oh, God, he opened wide for some soccer that day, Chris. <laughs> but in 1968, three games into the season, oh, okay. this October is when... 1st, 1968, he becomes the second head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. Yep. And... He has some mild success there, like he did in Minnesota, 7-6-1 uh, in 71, 9-5 in 1973. And uh, in that year, they beat the 9-0 Minnesota Vikings on Monday Night Football with Fran Tarkenton. Well, you can see 
with his record as a coach and kind of at the end of Philadelphia is that he can build a team. He can build an offense. He shows the what needs expansion to, teams. They're yes. getting the absolute drags. That's what I mean. Draft. And that's what he's kind of showing is that you can build winning programs and, you know, these you could really get guys from the draft that aren't veterans and show them how to be NFL players. And, he could identify talent. Yes. Well. He just for whatever reason, and you see this in all pro sports, how often do you see amazing players become amazing co- head coaches? It never happens because it's that natural God-given ability. And it has to be frustrating to watch people that aren't as good as you play. And when you have an asshole personality, that's just a recipe for disaster. Well, and that's it, the thing achieving that people say about the when guys are like oh he's so smart he he does that's what we're saying is like he could go on and be a coach he can identify talent he could run schemes if that he are was right a like gm he'd probably be good yes no one would have to answer him he wouldn't necessarily deal with the players he could just be like i like that guy i like that guy just smoking that cigarettes smoking oh chain smoking like a champion so he goes to phil or he goes to excuse me he goes to the falcons Atlanta. and you're right he has a, a couple of mild seasons in in 73, they have a great win over the Vikings. Um, nine and five. Most wins to that point in franchise and, history. And they, you're right, nine and five. And they look like this next year they're going to do well. Yeah. But, oh, hello, darkness, my old friend, 74 Falcons. So Well, the worst thing about seasons like this are the expectations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Whew. So what ends up happening is uh, in 19... Uh, 1974 uh they start two and six okay they get ass blasted week one shut out 24 to zero at home by the cowboys um they lose um or what ends up happening is uh there's a wide receiver named al dot and they're going into a because they lost on monday night football the previous week to the steelers they play the miami dolphins who've made the last three super bowls out of the afc in miami for a sunday game sunday afternoon game Wide receiver Al Dodd for the Atlanta Falcons' wife is pregnant. She's having a child. Van Brocklin basically berates him and says he doesn't want Dodd on the team if he's going to leave and tend to his wife who's about to give birth. That creates an entire shitstorm in the locker room. And the team implodes on November 3rd, 1974 and lose 42-7. to Well, you could just tell with this, the guys are probably just like, you know, there's more. There's things that are bigger than football, and Van Brocklin was like, "No, there isn't." The quote was, "The hell with you! I'll find someone to take your position." Yep. Oh man, I don't even think that qualifies as man of his time. No, it's it's <laughs> like, crazy shit. And I think he knew he was on the hot seat. Yeah. And everyone knew. And this is the other thing we'll talk about in the press conference after the game. People knew how to bait him. He was an easy target. He'd always take the cheese, and he'd be liable to say and do crazy shit. It was hot-headed, and sports writers especially, I just don't think he had ever had a really good relationship with sports writers, and they could see that they were just baiting him, baiting him. I think earlier in the season when they were— powersing it at this point. Well, when they were asking him, like, are you guys still going to fight on? Are you guys you say still going to— Say you're gonna... a fighter, Norm. And that's what he said. He goes, I'm a fighter. We're still going to, you know, battle on. He And uh, 
Whew. Ooh, he, the uh, press conference escalated. And he called him a fighter, and Van Brocklin proceeded to challenge everyone in the room to a fight, Randy Marsh style. He literally was just like, you want to fight? I'll fight and every see, single one of you. There's two ways to Pants this. drop. Remember Mike Gundy's glorious press conference where he was like, I'm a man, I'm 40, come at me. He was actually defending one of his players that a sports writer was talking crap about. Yes. Van Brocklin just said... Hey, Bat Dad, I don't hear no bell. <laughs> he literally was, it was, like I said, expectations were unbelievably high, and then they proceeded to have one of their worst seasons. They got the he, first pick in 75 to get Steve Varkowski. Yeah. Yep. He he lost the locker room. That's another thing that a coach probably feels more than anything. So and he didn't even do it smoothly like Val Kilmer and Tombstone and be like, I'm your Huckleberry. No, he literally <laughs> was just like, you want to fight? Who wants to fight? I'm going to. And his voice started going super high. And you were just like, come on, Van. <laughs> Rip my shirt off. Yeah. So the Falcons decide. The owner was in attendance at this game. Yes. He was axed shortly thereafter. But uh, he basically retired after that outside of uh, one year as Georgia Tech's backfield coach under Pepper Rogers in 79 um, to his pecan farm in Georgia and uh, was did some NFL work on the Superstation in Atlanta. But uh, as we discussed previously, um, one thing I had about his coaching career, he's actually the Longest tenured coach, 13 years total, to never make the postseason. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. That. Yeah, yeah, that's I great. To bring that up. But uh, yeah, did the broadcasting thing, settled in, but he uh, had a lot of health issues after his retirement due to his chain smoking all the time. The clips of him on the sidelines, you can go, oh, well, I see why this guy had many awful diseases. Yep. But um, he had a great joke uh, after he had a brain tumor. He said, it was a brain transplant. They gave me a sports writer's brain to make sure it hadn't been used. Yep. It was great. You could tell that he just hated. Even in his dying days. Um, he ends up dying in uh, 83 of a heart attack. May 2nd, 1983, yeah. I saw it was actually five weeks after teammate Bob Waterfield, which yeah. I thought was just an interesting that they split that time and they died so close to each other. Um, it's like Adams and Jefferson dying on July 4th on the same day. Yep. It's weird. Only it's for weird. football. Yeah. But yeah, Norm Van Brocklin, Pro Football Hall of Famer, nine-time Pro Bowl. Two pro bowler, two-time NFL champion, led the league in pass yards once, MVP in 1960, 1950s All-Decade team, college football, NFL, Eagles Hall of Fame. Thank you, Dutchman, for an awesome career and some good quips. And an American hero. That's Thank right. you all.